Hi, this is John Breyer with Mainly Matters, and today's guest is Dr. Wendy Weiger. Wendy is joining us today on the tail end of spending a winter in the woods of Maine, living off the grid. Wendy, thanks for coming on to the show today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Okay, you have a very interesting uh, history and story to tell. I thought I, w- I thought I would start by letting our listeners know a little bit about your background by reading directly uh, off your your bio information that's on your website, which, by the way, is wendyweiger.com. That's W-E-N-D-Y-W-E-I-G-E-R.com. So on that website, I see that you have put the following. Wendy Weiger, MD, PhD. I'm a research physician who left the halls of academe for the wilds of northern Maine. Nearly four decades ago, I was a budding scientist at Harvard College delving into the esoteric mysteries of quantum mechanics when my father's violent suicide cracked the foundation of my world. I was getting straight A's, but I feared I was flunking life. I began to question the meaning and purpose, if any, of our existence. My search for answers took me far and wide. I studied studied ancient meditative practices at a Tibetan Buddhist Buddhist monastery, I earned an MD and a PhD in neurobiology at Harvard Medical School, striving to understand the electrical and chemical underpinnings of our thoughts and emotions. But on a dark night in the wilderness forest came an unexpected call that would transform my life. I followed that call to the Maine woods, where I've qualified as a registered Maine guide and become a passionate environmental activist. Ultimately, my path through the wild has led from anguished isolation into joyful connection with the earth and into a new and healing fellowship with its source. By sharing my journey, I hope to guide others to the solace nature offers us all, and I hope my readers will, in turn, be inspired to work toward healing the wounds we are collectively inflicting upon our planet. That's a great bio, Wendy. Uh, really sh- sh- condenses a, a very amazing uh, path you've chosen, and, and I, I'm really happy to talk about it today. You, you definitely have a fascinating story to tell. Uh, your journey into the Maine woods, I think, is truly unique. Um, I think it would be, be helpful if you could start by telling our listeners a little bit about your academic degrees, you know, when you started learning and what you learned uh, on the academic side, and then we'll, we'll progress from there and, and talk about, you know, how you got to be where you are today and what you're doing. I grew up in the Maryland suburbs of Washington, D.C. From grades 6 through 12, I attended National Cathedral School. My schoolmates came from many different countries, many ethnicities, many religious backgrounds. The cathedral was still under construction, meaning we were in the midst of a giant, evolving work of art. In the long run, my classes there in writing and religion and the arts uh, proved to be invaluable. But at the time, I was a science and math nerd. I went on to Harvard College, where I majored in chemistry, studying esoteric topics like relativity and quantum mechanics. The problem, at least in terms of my prospects for a conventional scientific career, was that my interest in these subjects wasn't so much in their practical application. My interest was really in their philosophical and spiritual implications. I was always asking questions like, what does this mean about the nature of reality? 
what does it mean about the purpose and meaning of our existence? My teachers would say, don't worry about that, just do the math. After college, I stayed at Harvard to do a combined MD and PhD degree. My PhD was in neurobiology. I wanted to understand more about the chemistry of the brain and how it translates into our feelings and our thoughts and our actions. Interesting. So that you know, that's that's very high level stuff that you were learning and studying about and and, and putting into practice. I'm sure is uh, uh, was an amazing journey for you on the on the academic level. Your, your bio mentions that you worked at Harvard as a research scientist. Can you tell us a little bit about that time in your life and the research that you did? Well, for my PhD thesis, I did laboratory research on the biological basis of aggressive behavior. The animal I studied is one that is near and dear to the hearts of Mainers, that's a lobster. You wouldn't know it from looking at them crammed in the tanks with their claws bandaged shut, but in the wild, lobsters establish social hierarchies by fighting. One of the chemicals that's involved in lobster aggressive behavior is serotonin, which is a chemical that plays an important role in our own human brains and that influences our emotions and our behavior. After I got my MD-PhD, I did an internship in internal medicine, and from there, I went on to a research fellowship. I worked at Harvard Medical School's Osher Institute. Uh, it was founded to study complementary and alternative therapies from a scientific perspective. For my major project there, I worked to develop a set of guidelines that conventional doctors can use to advise patients who want to combine alternative therapies with conventional treatment. Advice to patients should be based on what we know about the effectiveness of particular alternative therapies and how safe they are. Some of them are potentially dangerous. And what we know about how they may interact with conventional treatments, such as prescription medications. A lot of patients these days are using alternative therapies, such as mind-body practices or acupuncture or herbal supplements. So it's very important for doctors to be able to talk to their patients about these therapies in a meaningful way. Interesting. Yeah, thank you. I, you know, I, I, I agree with you with what you were just talking about. I've, I've seen in my own life and in um, the lives of some of my friends and, and, and people that I know well, um, using some of these alternative therapies, supplements, you know, herbal herbal uh, supplements and stuff can have a great effect, and you don't necessarily have to rely uh, completely on pharmaceutical drugs and, and those sort of things. Um, so your bio also said you, you spent some time overseas where you studied ancient meditative practices at a Tibetan Buddhist monastery. What was that experience like? And what drove you to seek out this type of, of learning experience? During my teenage years, my father developed bipolar disorder. His mood swings and his delusions made our home increasingly chaotic and at times even frightening. Sometimes he threatened violence, though he never in the end harmed my mother or me physically. When I was 20 years old, I was 
home uh, on an academic break and end of summer vacation. He shot himself. His suicide rocked the foundations of my world. I struggled for years to make sense of what had happened and what it meant in terms of how I should live my own life. When I was 24, I won a fellowship to spend a year doing research abroad. I went to India and Nepal to study how mental illness was treated in the traditions of those countries. While I was in Nepal, I took an intensive meditation course in a Tibetan Buddhist monastery. I was hoping in retrospect to find a way to come to terms with the turmoil of emotions I was still feeling around my father's death, anger and guilt and despair. I desperately wanted to find inner peace. At the monastery, we spent several hours each day in various types of guided meditation. There's one technique that I learned there that has remained an integral part of my life over the 30 plus years since then. That technique is mindfulness, which is something I practice regularly when I'm outdoors in the main woods. In mindfulness, we immerse ourselves in the present moment. We concentrate on what we're seeing and hearing and smelling and feeling here and now. We're fully awake to all the wonders around us, all the little gifts that we might ordinarily miss just because we're not normally paying that much attention. Things like the flash of light on water, the songs of birds, the delicious scent of sun-warmed pine needles. I don't need to worry about the past or the future when I am engaged in just allowing my surroundings to absorb me. And a moment like that, right here, right now, wherever I am, in this place, for this moment, all is well. It's true, my problems won't miraculously vanish. They'll still be there when I get back to my ordinary life. But moments like these offer a fresh perspective and much-needed rest for my soul. Hmm. Well, thank you for, for that uh, mindfulness. Very uh, powerful concept. I think um, Maine is obviously, and, and the woods of Maine is a place where uh, you can certainly experience that, um, should you choose to, in a, in a great, great way almost all the time compared to maybe some of the other places around the world um, where uh, you don't quite have that, that that opportunity. But thank you for sharing that with us. It's a powerful story, and um, I'm glad you emerged from that that uh, difficulty and, and have gone on to become uh, very successful and um, visionary in, in what, you're, what you're explaining to us today. Y- your bio on your website, uh, wendyweiger.com, I, I mentioned it in the introduction, but it has the following statement. On a dark night in a wilderness forest came an unexpected call that would transform my life. Can you tell our listeners about that night in particular? What was that unexpected call and how did it specifically lead to your transformation? At the time, I was getting ready to leave for the year in India and Nepal that we just discussed. I knew I was going to be far away from my mother for months, unable even to speak much over the phone. Back in those days, long ago, there were no cell phones. 
And so I set aside some time to spend with my mother before my departure. We traveled up to our childhood home in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, which has a lot in common with the Maine woods. And it's the place where I first really fell in love with our country's northern forest. We went camping in the Porcupine Mountains Wilderness State Park on the shore of Lake Superior. We walked down to the beach on a dark, starry night. I wasn't looking to have a spiritual experience, but then something unexpected happened. I write about it in the prologue to my book, Heaven Beneath Our Feet, a book for which I'm currently seeking a publisher. I'd like to read that prologue for you now. That'd be great, please The title do. is, the title of the prologue is To Be Swallowed. 35 years ago, I stood on the shore of Lake Superior, the largest of the Great Lakes on a moonless night. Behind me rose the porcupine mountains of Michigan's Upper Peninsula, cloaked in virgin forest. Before me, water stretched to the northern horizon, black and silent. It seemed that I stood alone at the edge of the world. I felt a sudden sense of fear. I knew that the small candle flicker of my identity could not prevail against the endless emptiness surrounding me. I felt the night flooding into my soul, dissolving all that I was. And then, unexpectedly, I became the night. I was the lake, deep, dark, cold, unknowable. My body extended down into the hard, rough rocks beneath me. My mind was as vast as the wilderness around me and as quiet. In losing myself, I found a more expansive identity. Nothing in my life had prepared me for this experience. I was 24 years old. I had always lived in cities and was raised from early childhood to follow a scholarly path. I had been taught to approach the natural world analytically. To a certain extent, I had been encouraged to admire nature's beauty, but in a detached intellectual way. On that night, my relationship with the natural world became intimately personal. The wilderness spoke to the core of my being in a language far older than any human tongue. My spirit melted into an infinite river of ceaselessly flowing energy without beginning or end, then reemerged, subtly enhanced, never to return to its previous solitary dimension. I felt stronger. Freer. I sensed a single divinity that is my own inmost nature and the essence of all creation. On that night, I was called, called to explore my primal bond with the natural world and with its creator, called to reconsider the life path I had chosen, or had I really chosen it at all? Was I just doing what others had always expected of me? On that night, I was called to begin the journey that will last the rest of my life. No, I did not simply abandon all prior plans and embark on my quest without a backward glance. 
So that was, in truth, what I wanted to do. My mentors had prepared me for a conventional scientific career. I feared they would disapprove, would tell me that I was wasting my abilities, wasting the considerable resources they had poured into my education. I fully valued the importance of their work, but I now knew that my own work lay elsewhere. I wanted to pursue what they would consider a mere illusion, something that could not be measured or quantified, something that did not even exist. How could I explain the deeper reality I sensed that night? In the end, the call was too strong to ignore. I got going, slowly, tentatively, hesitantly at first. Hmm. 30 years later, the journey continues. I've traveled outwardly, up mountains and down rivers, eventually settling in the main woods. And I've traveled inwardly, seeking my authentic self. Along the way, I have found healing on multiple levels, physical, emotional, spiritual. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, amazing that you had the, uh, the courage to, to kind of take that, that bold step from, from that night, uh, looking up at the stars to, to, to doing what you've done with your life. A lot of people wouldn't, wouldn't have uh, the courage to, to do that. And maybe you'll inspire others to, uh, to think differently through, through telling us this story. When you transitioned from urban academic life, you know, to the Maine woods, what, what led you to choose Maine? Tell us a little bit about that when you finally decided, okay, I'm going to make this change. Um, what led you to choose Maine specifically? And, and what was it like moving from that, you know, urban environment into the woods? When I was 27 years old, so a few years after my study in the monastery and my experience on the shore of Lake Superior, um, and when I was 27, that was seven years after my father's death, I learned that a dearly beloved aunt was dying of ovarian cancer. And somehow the impending loss of my aunt opened the floodgates of all the lingering pain that I held inside me from my father's death. I fell into a very dark depression. I actually thought of following my father in suicide, but I realized I didn't really want to die. What I wanted was to find a reason to live. So I took the summer off from the lab where I was working and I went home to Maryland to help care for my aunt. And I thought care for myself as well. I got psychotherapy. I had a friend who owned a horse farm about 20 minutes drive from our family home. Whenever I had free time, I rented a horse and roamed the local fields and woods and streams. While I was out riding, I allowed the landscape to absorb me and my pain eased. I could feel the earth embracing me, calming me. I could feel my soul begin to breathe. In the fall, I went back to Harvard, but with a new spirit. I hoped to share the healing I found in nature with other folks who were struggling. This was a long-term goal. It was not something that happened overnight. I remained in Boston for several years to complete my degree and also do 
some postgraduate training and research. We've talked about some of that. My mother, who had always been my best friend, sold the family home in Maryland, and she moved up to join me. During vacations, my mother and I began to search for a land that felt like home, a place where we both felt we wanted to spend the rest of our lives. As I mentioned, my mother's roots were in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. We both felt strongly drawn to our country's northern forest. We seriously considered Alaska, and I spent six weeks there working in a hospital operated by a Native tribal organization. But in the end, we drove just five hours north from Boston to Moosehead Lake, the gateway to the Maine woods. And pretty much the moment we laid eyes on it, we knew, both of us knew we were home. Seventeen years ago, when I was 42, my mother and I left city life behind once and for all and moved to the town of Greenville at the southern tip of Moosehead Lake. My plan was to write about our relationship with nature. I hope to guide my readers into deeper, more joyful connection with the natural world so they could find healing in nature as I had done. I also hoped that a deeper connection with nature would inspire people to take better care of the health of the earth. I didn't see my new path as a departure from my career in medicine. I saw it as the practice of medicine in a broader sense. Of course, life always has plenty of twists and turns. And since moving to Maine, I've done more than just right. I've devoted considerable time and energy to environmental advocacy. And I've thrown myself into learning wood skills. Uh, as you already mentioned, I've become a registered Maine guide. While my mother was alive, we lived in a house in Greenville, uh, a conventional on-the-grid house. But we bought 12 acres of remote land on the shore of First Roach Pond, just east of Moosehead Lake, now where I am now. I'm speaking to you now from that land. And we built a one-room off-the-grid cabin where I'm sitting right now. Uh, it has no running water or electricity. Mother and I spent many, many happy days enjoying our land and cabin together. Mother passed away several years ago at the age of 88, and according to her wishes, I scattered her ashes along our shore. Since then, I sold the Greenville house, and the cabin has become my primary residence. Just this past winter, I realized a long-cherished dream, spending a full winter living in the cabin. Wow. Thank you for, uh, again, sharing some very powerful personal information with our listeners. Um, I can relate in a, in a certain way to what you just said. I actually went to high school in Arlington, Massachusetts, which is right you know, next to Cambridge, seven miles outside of Boston, um, before I ended up uh, going to Maine uh, full-time, uh, going to the University of Maine and then grad school in Maine. And, and I have a home on McGraw Pond in, in Oakland. Um, it's actually the last house on the on the lake, and it's unique because it's in a bog sort of area, and I've got a 200-foot uh, dock that goes out and it's almost like being completely isolated um, out there at the you know last house on the lake you can't see any other homes and just look down over the lake so so amazing uh, that you've been able to 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 live your dream and uh, share that that story about your mother and, and that you folks have been able to do that thank you talking about your your recent adventure and and living living out one of your dreams which was spending an entire main winter in that cabin in the woods off the grid um, before we get into that, let's just talk briefly about your recent book, Living Every Season. 
A Mindful Year in the Maine Woods. What drove you to author that book? You know, what, what's it about? And, and where can our les- listeners get a copy of that book if, if they want to, to read it? I'm first and foremost a writer, but I find a lot of joy in nature photography, too. So in Living Every Season, I've chosen some of my favorite photos to guide readers through the four seasons of the Maine Woods. I do include some uh, some of the photos that you would probably be expecting, uh, dramatic photos of sunsets and mountain vistas. But a lot of my photos focus on small details casual observers might miss. For instance, things like tiny maple blossoms scattered on spring snow or a delicate shadow cast by small leaves onto a trailside stone. I pair the photos with text that interprets both the science and the art of the images. I want readers to feel like they're standing right next to me, seeing what I'm seeing and feeling what I'm feeling. I hope the book will enhance readers' sense of wonder and will help to open their eyes and their hearts to the natural world that is always around them wherever they may live, even in cities. For people who would like to buy a copy of Living Every Season, it's available online to my website, which you already mentioned, at wendyweiger.com. And just in case anybody is joining partway through the show, I'll spell that out again. I hope you don't mind. No, go ahead, please. W-E-N-D-Y. Oh, here we go. Um, W-E-N-D-Y-W-E-I-G-E-R.com. It's also available at several shops in Greenville, if you ever travel up this way. It's at Northwoods Outfitters, the Corner Shop, Indian Hill Trading Post, and the Moosehead Historical Society. And in Monson, it's available at the general store. Great. Well, thank you. I'll definitely be uh, ordering a copy from your website. Um, that's interesting. I, I, I didn't know how you would put that together till you just explained it. So I think that's uh, going to be a very interesting way to, to look at photographs and, and also understand a lot more um, than just, you know, looking at a picture. So thank you. So, uh, you know, the reason we're doing this show actually is because I, I heard about you when there was a recent article, I think it was in the Bangor Daily News a, a couple of months ago about this adventure that you've been living this winter in the main woods off the grid alone. So not an easy feat, um, not something most people would even consider doing. Um, why did you do it? I should mention first, in case anybody wants to look up the article, uh, it was actually in the Portland Press Herald, and the author was Deirdre Fleming. Yes. It was in the outdoors section uh, this past March. So, and you you can find it online if you'd like. Thank you for correcting so me. I, why I, did I do it? Well, I've always <laughs> I've always loved winter, and uh, winter the Maine woods have an amazing austere beauty that I find exquisite. I wanted to immerse myself in the deep stillness of the winter forest and learn what it could teach me, both about myself and also about the earth. It's true that living off the grid takes a lot of physical work, especially in winter, but cabin life does have its compensations. My cabin offers what I like to call alternative luxury. For me, there are few pleasures greater than sitting in my rocking chair basking in the glow of my wood stove, sipping a cup of hot tea, all snug and cozy while the wind roars and the snow falls outside. 
And it's true that I was living alone by most people's standards, but I rarely feel alone in the woods, even when I'm the only human for miles around. All nature becomes my companion. I have the local birds and animals for my neighbors. And as a writer, I feel that my readers are friends who are always accompanying me in spirit on all of my adventures. Hmm. Amazing. And I, I do, I have experienced the, you know, the, the beauty of Maine's winter personally, you know, but at an, in an on the grid home, but um, again, on a lake. So I, I do definitely understand that just the, the, the beauty of the silence of winter, the watching the snowfall, listening to the ice crack out on the lake and um, just, but the way you, you've taken it to a whole nother level. So that's, that's amazing. I'm glad you're enjoying it and living one of your life's dreams. Can you give us an example just of a typical week living off the grid alone during the winter? Like, for example, I just described, um, you know, my appreciation of, of Maine winter. But uh, after a couple of weeks, you know, it, 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 it might be something some people would say, all right, that was beautiful and stunning. But I want to get somewhere warmer or um, where it's not so hard uh, to, to just exist. You're doing it in an extremely harsh environment where it's very difficult um, to do that and, and to live every day. And so just give us an example of a typical week, you know, middle of winter, it's February, you're living off the grid in your cabin. What do you do? Well, one of the big joys of living alone deep in the winter woods is that my schedule is completely my own. There is no rigid timetable. I've always personally tended to be a night owl. So out here in the cabin, if my thoughts are flowing and I want to keep writing all night, I can do that and then catch up on sleep by napping during the day. Or if I feel like walking down to my shore in the middle of the night to lie back on an ice-covered rock and look up at the stars, I can just go ahead and do it. So that's the fun part. Um, and that being said, there are chores that are not optional things that I must do in order just to survive. If it's well below zero outside, it's, uh, it, it, you know, these chores are things that are just basic just to stay alive. And there are two constants around which my life revolves out here in the winter. One is tending the fire and the other is hauling water. So when I get up on a winter morning, the first thing I do is restart the fire in my wood stove. I let it die down overnight. I don't like to interrupt my sleep to get up to feed it, but there are usually some remaining embers that I can coax back into life. I use birch bark that I gather from my own trees as a fire starter, and I keep a supply of firewood in an indoor rack. When it's really cold, I generally need to refill the rack every day. This past fall, I stacked nearly three cords of wood in a tent behind my cabin. Um, it's a large, sturdy tent. And so I go out behind the cabin and I pick up an armload of wood from the tent when I, I need to fill that rack. And my next stop from there is my splitting block. I use my axe and wedge and sledgehammer to split the wood into smaller pieces that will ignite more easily. Uh, I have to do that particularly because I got kind of a late start with the uh, wood stacking this fall. Um, my wood was delivered at a point where it didn't have time to season properly. So it takes more coaxing than seasoned wood would take to get a fire going. So 
so uh, once I get the wood, um, at, at the wood split, I carry it back into the cabin. Um, but I don't find the wood splitting usually to be burdensome. I generally enjoy it. Um, and to me, it feels like a kind of an act of meditation, a, a kind of backwoods yoga, uh, if you want to think of it that way. Um, and uh, that being said, sometimes I will have gotten caught up in reading or writing, and it's 11 at night, and it's hovering around zero degrees, and I realize I don't have enough wood to get through the night, and so I have to put on my headlamp and go out and be splitting wood out in the cold midnight. Um, that's a little less fun, but, um, but it's part of the game. And I get the reward then of sitting by the cozy fire in the wood stove. As I mentioned, the other non-negotiable chore in my life is hauling water. I have a hand pump that sits atop a well. It's nearly 300 feet from my cabin. And my pump has one feature that counts as a real backwoods luxury. When I'm done pumping, the water drops below the frost line so it never freezes. Even when the temperature is below zero, I can get liquid water with just a few strokes of the handle. It takes nearly 50 strokes to fill my two pails, and they weigh almost 50 pounds when they're full. Uh, filling and hauling them definitely provides a good upper body workout. Uh, it's definitely as good as an exercise machine in a gym. Now, in terms of uh, heading out for supplies, in January and February and March, I need one trip to town each month for mail and errands and food and other supplies that I needed. Um, I initially, when I was planning for the winter, thought I would want to go out more often, but uh, as I immersed myself in the life here, I really didn't want to leave. Uh, even once a month seemed like more than I wanted to do. Uh, it was necessary, but, uh, but falling into the rhythm of life here, uh, town didn't have a great attraction for me. Uh, I don't own a snowmobile, so uh, what I do is I park my car along plowed roads, and I get my supplies back to my cabin by loading them into a sled that has a harness attached to it. I strap on my snowshoes, I buckle the harness around my waist, and off I go. Depending on where I park, I need to pull the sled from two and a half to four and a half miles to get back home. So I've talked a lot about the work involved in off-the-grid life in the Maine woods in winter, but of course, life isn't all chores and writing. Uh, I love watching sunsets over the frozen pond. I love going out at night to stargaze. I love snowshoeing through the woods or out on the ice of the pond or up the nearest mountain. It's about an eight-mile round trip to the summit and back of Shaw Mountain, which I think of as my backyard mountain. I'm always watching and listening for winter birds, and I'm always looking for animal tracks in the snow. Uh, there, there's always a lot to keep me occupied. I almost never get bored in the woods. My days always seem full. I always seem to have plenty to keep my, both my mind and my body engaged. Wow. Thank you. Um, just, just amazing. I mean, I, I found my mind when I was listening to you talk about you know, splitting the wood, uh, walking a t two to four miles, towing the sled, um, looking up at the stars. I, I, I thought about myself when I've done some of those things. Um, it really brought me into the main winter in my own mind and um, definitely an amazing experience. I think a lot of people don't have the, the ability to, to do that. Um, 
just given their life circumstances, but um, wonderful that, that you're being able to experience that. And it's amazing. When you are alone in the woods, in the cabin, you know, living off grid, doing all that work um, in harsh conditions, you know, you would, you, you do got to keep that fire going or you can't live and you got to get the water and all that. It's, it's a lot of work. Um, but what do you find yourself learning about yourself? Do you like this particular winter, you're alone in the woods. Did you, what did you learn about yourself this winter, about life, you know, about the human condition overall that might've been different or more expansive than, than where you were with, with all of this prior to this experience this winter? When I'm alone in the woods, I have time for intense contemplation that would generally be impossible in ordinary life in the mainstream world. And I have to admit, my contemplation is not always easy when doubts or fears or regrets come up into my mind. I can't fall back on the endless supply of distractions offered in modern high-tech society. I can't turn up the stereo or binge on Netflix. I have no choice but to think things through. Somehow, when I wrestle with all of these emotions that sometimes are wonderful and sometimes were emotions that I wished I weren't feeling, um, somehow the stillness of my surroundings has helped me to be gentler with myself. The woods and waters and mountains, the winds and the snow seem to be whispering peace to my heart. They seem to encourage me to reframe my shortcomings and my disappointments as opportunities for future growth rather than sources of crippling regret. I started the winter with the intention of accepting whatever experiences came my way, whether they were joyful and beautiful or grueling and uncomfortable, as learning opportunities. If I find myself getting frustrated or anxious, I try to remember, and it's not always easy, but I try to remember to take a mental step back and ask myself, what am I supposed to be learning from this situation? I'm gradually getting better at trusting in my path. Of course, it's natural for us humans to fret over all the uncertainties, to worry over all the things that could go wrong. But I'm growing stronger in my faith that if I'm truly meant to accomplish something, and if I do my part to work toward achieving that goal, then the means will be provided for me to get the job done. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. So, you know, winter's wrapping up. Uh, spring is here. Summer will be here soon. When you emerge from the isolation and the challenges associated with your time in the woods, do you, do you find that to be an uplifting experience? And how do you feel your time alone in the woods enhances your life when you do transition back into you know, more of an integration with mainstream society. I think the most uplifting part of the winter has been the increased peace I feel with myself. Uh, I talked about that um, just a little bit um, in mm -hmm. my answer to your previous question. Mm -hmm. So I feel increased peace with both the parts of myself that I like and the parts of myself that clearly need some improvement. 
grown more comfortable with thinking of myself as a work in progress, a highly imperfect person, but nonetheless trying hard to follow the path that is right for me. What I'm hoping is that I'll be able to hang on to that perspective in the mainstream world when I get back into it. Out in our ordinary world, the hectic din can drown out the quiet inner voice of the spirit. I expect you've experienced that as well in the contrast between your life uh, in, on your lake and your ordinary life out in the world. Yes, definitely. What I'm hoping is that I will be able to continue when I get back into the ordinary world to view every experience as an opportunity for growth, as I've tried to do here. And I'm hoping that I will welcome every person I meet as a potential teacher. I also want to remember to practice mindfulness in the natural world wherever I am, even in cities. There are flowers that bloom and birds singing in trees along the street or in parks. And if you look up, there are clouds drifting through blue skies. If we pause to notice and give thanks for these everyday natural miracles that are available to some extent, I know I'm blessed here to have them in such abundance, but they are available everywhere to some extent. And I think that pausing to notice and give thanks for these miracles will enrich my life anywhere I may be in the world. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. You know, there's something about Maine in general, um, just people, many people, most people that I know that experience Maine in some part of their lives, whether it's, you know, being born and raised there or, or going to college there or, or working there or moving there, it's something that really stays with you. And I, I think um, most people that that experience Maine don't get to experience it the way you are uh, doing. But just being there, there's something about it that I think just connects people. And maybe it's that mindfulness that they all uh, experience with not even really realizing they're experiencing it because there's so much, it's just such an overload of, of, of natural beauty um, and, and Maine's different than, you know, New Hampshire. It's different than Massachusetts. It's it's a different place. And um, people that that uh, experience it tend to carry that with them wherever they go in the United States or wherever they go around the world. It's definitely a special place. And, and, and you've uh, really identified a lot of the reasons why. So hopefully our listeners will take your words uh, to heart and be more mindful or practice mindfulness in their everyday lives when they're out and about, and hopefully that'll have a positive effect. So uh, before we wrap up, what, what's next for, for Dr. Wendy Weiger? What's on the immediate horizon for you? In the short term, I will soon be returning to my seasonal job with the Appalachian Trail Conservancy. I manage the Monson Appalachian Trail Visitor Center, and this is gonna be my fifth year at the center. We offer information about hiking and all kinds of outdoor activities, both on and off the Appalachian Trail. And I strongly encourage anyone who's interested in exploring the Moosehead and 100-mile wilderness regions to stop by. We're very easy to find. We are located in the Historical Society building right on Monson's Main Street, and we'll be opening to the public on June 2. If you want to know more, you can find us on Facebook under Monson Appalachian Trail Visitor Center. 
A few years back, I founded my own small nonprofit, Acor Earthways. Over the long term, we plan to offer programs that teach the mindfulness practices I've been talking about to help people deepen their connection with nature. So that will be on the longer term horizon. Um, I had just started offering multimedia presentations when the pandemic hit. So those have been temporarily suspended, but uh, I hope to get those started again and to offer outdoor as well as indoor presentations. I, I plan to offer mindful nature walks and hikes. And uh, in the long term, I hope it's not too long term, I hope to find a publisher for my book, Heaven Beneath Our Feet, from which I just read the prologue. In Heaven Beneath Our Feet, I write in more detail about many of the personal experiences that I've talked about today, and I explain the practice of mindfulness in nature in more depth. Uh, I also offer guidelines for how we can reintegrate our lives with nature wherever we may live, even in cities. And I think that is an important point to make. Again, I've been very blessed to have long stretches of time in wild places. But it's entirely possible to have a deep and meaningful relationship with nature if you live in the midst of a city, if you take advantage of and notice the natural wonders that are around you, even there. Okay, well, thank you very much. Um... Hopefully, I'll get to meet you this summer. I'd like my younger, my daughter, Katie, who's nine, I'd like her to meet you and um, maybe experience one of those hikes with you someday. Keep keep me posted on that. When you get those going, that's a whole other thing we can talk about. But I really want to thank you for taking the time to be with us today on Mainly Matters. Your, your story is amazing. I think you're amazing yourself um, for sharing it with us. So, uh, thank you very much. We look forward to continuing to follow you. I wish you luck with finding a publisher. And um, I hope you enjoy your, your integration back into, into mainstream uh, here shortly. So thank you very much, uh, Dr. Weiger. We really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you very much. It's been great to talk with you. All right. This is John Breyer with Mainly Matters. And thanks for stopping by. We'll be back soon with a new episode.